Sometimes people ask why. Why do we do this? When we came up here, I didn't feel capable. Because I was scared. Why do we take our families away from places that are familiar and move to places that are far off? My wife was nine months pregnant and we did not know one person who lived in the city. Why do we come to where there's nothing so we can try and start something? The Lord really just, He broke my heart for this city before I stepped off the plane. Why do we stress and strain and struggle and sweat just to make life better for someone else? There's so many people that are broken, that are lost, and it's heartbreaking. Yes, sometimes people ask why, and when they do, we tell them. There's places where the truth hasn't yet reached. We need to share the gospel and reach out to our community. We tell them there's a God who loves them so much, He sent us. God spoke to us, broke our hearts for the city, and God's call trumps all. And we tell them there are people who love them so much. They give so that we can go. When people give uh, to missions, things happen. New believers are getting baptized. New churches are started. So when people ask why, that's what we tell them. We tell them it's the gospel. It's all about the gospel. If I was sitting down having a cup of coffee with you and you and I were to just talk about the state of our world, especially the spiritual state of our world, and I were to ask you, in your opinion, what do you consider to be some of the most unreached areas for the gospel in the world, you would probably think of places like the Middle East, certainly uh, where there's a heavy Islamic influence and in many places where it's illegal to be Christians. Many of us would think about China and, and uh, the lack of Christian witness in China. Um, but most of us would probably not consider some of the places in North America to be unreached places. But the reality of it is, is that the vast majority of North America has not been reached for the gospel. But think about the city of Toronto and our North American Mission Board has identified 33 cities within North America that they call sinned cities, that are places where there's the greatest population of lostness and the greatest impact potential for, for the gospel. And so in the city of Toronto, there are 6.5 million people in that city. Just across our border, 6.5 million people. Less than 3% of those are evangelical Christians, meaning that in a, in, a, in a city, a metropolitan city of 6.5 million people, there are less than 200,000 followers of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. Think about the city of Boston, where I've been several times and had the opportunity to, to partner with a couple of church planters up there and still have good relationships with those guys today. And, I think about the fact that the city of Boston, there's, there's, there's around uh, 6 million people within Metro Boston, and less than 2% of Metro Boston is considered evangelical Christian. This is, a, this is a place where 
the Great Awakening took place in the United States of America 150 years ago. It's a place where there was once a very strong evangelical presence. I've stood in the Boston Common where they said George Whitfield preached a message one day to over 200,000 people gathered in that park. And now in that city, less than 2% of the people in that city have a saving knowledge of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And so the task that we have as followers of Jesus Christ to spread the gospel is great, not just in places like China, North Africa, and South America and Central America, but even within the borders of our own country or right across the border into places in Canada. And that's why the North American Mission Board exists. The North American Mission Board exists to help us as Southern Baptists to do the work of missions and evangelism here in North America. Not all of us can give up our life and replant our life in a metropolitan city over the course of the next few weeks you're going to hear the stories of some people that God has called to do that. You're going to hear the stories of some people that God has laid specifically on their heart that, that their calling in life is to take their family and go and take the gospel to a place where very few people know about Jesus Christ. And that's what the Annie Armstrong Easter offering is all about. It's about us as followers of Jesus Christ using the resources that God has provided to us for the advancement of the gospel into some of the hardest reach places, including those within our own borders. And so we will show you these videos. This last week we gave you a prayer guide and asked you to pray for those missionaries. If you weren't here last week, there's a copy of those prayer guides probably in the pew racks in front of you. Take that with you and pray over those this week. Um, be lifting up our missionaries in prayer. We've been, if you're on Facebook, we've been putting Facebook posts up there with some of the different stories, trying to link you to some of that. Because we can pray, and we can sacrifice, and we can give in order to take the gospel to those places where people need to hear. And hopefully, in the near future, we will be having some strategic partnerships in some of these cities, and will give us an opportunity to go and partner in a real and tangible way with some of these church planners to help them advance the gospel. So if God so leads you to uh, give a gift to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, there are offering envelopes in front of you. Uh, everything that you put in there, 100%, gets forwarded to the North American Mission Board to accomplish its missions and purposes. Some of you already give through our harvest offering and know that about 16% of everything that you give over the course of the year to the harvest offering goes to support Annie Armstrong and the North American Mission Board. So thank you to your faithfulness in both of those arenas. And let's continue to remember all between now and Easter Sunday to, to pray for our missionaries and those who are leading the North American Mission Board. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been in about an eight-week journey so far through the book of 1 Peter in a sermon series that we are calling Kingdom Exiles Living Hope. And for the last two months, we've been in this letter that Peter wrote to Christians in the first century church, and we've learned much in those two months about our calling as believers in Christ who live in a fallen culture that is very oftentimes opposed to the message of the gospel. The reality of it is, is that the things that we come together and study here in, in our Bible studies, the things that I preach from this pulpit, the vast majority of people in our culture are opposed to this message. As a matter of fact, 
We believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through Him, right? We believe that. The Scriptures testify to that, that there is no other name in heaven by which one can or must be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that. However, to say that in the popular culture makes you to be very narrow-minded and, 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 and very intolerant. To suggest that if you don't submit your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and repent of your sins and trust in the Christian message means that you will spend eternity separated from God in a place of eternal condemnation is one of the most offensive things that you can say in our contemporary culture. The vast majority of our culture does not agree with the truths that we hold and the things that we affirm. And it's becoming more and more difficult to adhere to a biblical worldview and to Christian values in our culture because it seems like every day the Christian values that we adhere to are under attack. But it's not something that's just inherent to our time. This is what followers of Jesus Christ have been experiencing ever since the church was founded. This is what followers of Jesus Christ are experiencing right now in places like China where the church is blossoming and growing, but it's still very much an underground movement. And in, in, in many places like, matter of fact, the, the fastest growing Christian movement right now, do you know where it is? It's in Iran. More people coming to faith in Christ in Iran than just about any other place in the world right now. But many are doing so at great peril to their own personal lives. And so Peter writes this letter to Christians, first century Christians spread throughout the region of Asia Minor who were experiencing increasing persecution and alienation from the surrounding culture, specifically for their faith in Jesus Christ. And he exhorts them over and over and over again. When we started this message, we told you there are four recurring themes and you're seeing them every single week. One of those is that all true Christians are citizens of the kingdom of God who are living in exile temporarily in a fallen world. And that as followers of Jesus Christ, the world that we live in presently is not our true home and it is not our final destination. And also because we are sojourners who are passing through this world and because we value and give allegiance primarily to King Jesus, all true Christians will experience alienation, persecution, and suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to come. We should expect it. And even though these things are true as Christians, even though we, are not really, we don't really belong here and we're just kind of passing through and we're going to be suffering persecution and alienation, we are still called to live our lives with a living hope. That's what he says in 1 Peter 1, 3. And we are called to a living hope. So how do we do that? Well, we've looked at several different ways. The past three weeks, we've been really honing in on chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Peter tells us one of the most important ways that, that we give Christian witness in this world is by our submission to the God-given authorities that God has placed in our lives. Authorities like government and the workplace and the home. And as we as Christians learn to submit to those authorities in a godly way, we are in, 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 in a way showing the example of our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in today's text, Peter is going to bring this lengthy passage on Christian submission to a close and turn once again to the fact 
that followers of Jesus Christ are called to experience suffering for righteousness' sake. David alluded to that a few minutes ago. That this next section of Scripture, we're going to see the reality that as Christians, as we live right, we will experience suffering for that. We already saw this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, where Peter says, To this you have been called. We've been called as followers of Jesus Christ to suffer because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. We said a few weeks ago that we follow a Savior whose entire life was marked by suffering, scorn, criticism, and eventually death for simply declaring true righteousness and showing people what God's kingdom was like. That Jesus Christ came and and did exactly what God had called Him to do, and because of that, He was criticized, He was ridiculed, He was marginalized, and eventually He was crucified. In chapter 3, verse 17, in the passage we're going to look at next week, we're going to see Peter say, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Again, helping us to see that sometimes, as he says here, it is God's will to subject His people who do good and live righteously to subject them to unjust suffering at the hands of evil people. God wills suffering in our lives. And I, don't, I know that this message of God, God's purposes being accomplished through our suffering doesn't really make sense in our, in our culture. It doesn't, make, it doesn't reconcile easily in a prosperity-laced evangelical culture that states that usually suffering is brought about because of sin or a lack of faith in our lives. But we're going to see that God will use the suffering of His people to glorify Himself. And so before we get into that passage next week, the, Peter anticipates the response of his, of his readers who are basically saying to themselves, how do I deal with these realities? How, do I, how does God want me to live today in light of this truth? How does God desire for me to live when I leave my house tomorrow morning? Knowing that I'm going to go into a world and I'm called to live with hope, and, and as, as I affirm the Christian message, as I share the gospel, as I live for Christ, I'm probably not going to be understood and quite likely going to be ridiculed for it. How am I supposed to live in a culture that's going to treat me that way? Am I supposed to leave my house in the morning with my spiritual swords drawn, expecting to engage in a religious fight? Am I supposed to just lay down and let people run over me in the name of Jesus? Or am I called to withdraw from culture and isolate myself in a safe and secure Christian bubble where we criticize the fallenness and the brokenness of the culture around us and we we pray that God would save people, but the reality is that many of us rarely, if actually, ever engage with a lost person who doesn't know Jesus. Is that God's solution? We're just going to kind of huddle up until Jesus comes back. And we're going to pray that God sends the gospel to people, but we're not really going to be ones that are going to say much about it. That's what Peter is anticipating from his readers when he shows us this text today found in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Let's read that text if you would. 1 Peter 3, he says, finally, he's transitioning from this thought on submission to authority to suffering for righteousness' sake. So he says, finally, all of you, that's the church, have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This text is filled with practical instruction on the daily choices that we as kingdom exiles in a fallen world that we are to engage in. And so we see in this really kind of the main point of the sermon today is simply this, that the followers of Jesus Christ are called to live a distinctive life marked by grace, goodness, peace, and blessing towards others. As followers of Jesus Christ, what Peter is telling us here is that in light of the fact that we are going to be ridiculed, we are going to be marginalized, that it's better for suffering, for doing good than for doing evil, in light of that truth, we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to live a distinctive life. There should be something distinctive about us as followers of Christ. And that distinction is to be marked by grace, by goodness, by peace, and by blessing others. And so he tells us four choices that as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I must make every day. The first of those is that we must choose to put on the markers of grace. We must choose to put on in our life the markers or the evidences of grace. In verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you. And these are instructions to the entire church. These are instructions that apply to everyone who identifies with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what he, the instructions he's giving you apply directly to you. And what does he say? All of you have unity of mind, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What are these? These are the markers of people who are connected to Jesus Christ. These are the public evidences of God's grace towards us in salvation. And each one of these characteristics and qualities are public acts that demonstrate to others the reality of a changed heart. Because of the grace of God that has been given us as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to reciprocate that same grace towards others that God places in our path. Now I want you to think about this by way of the illustration of changing clothes or putting on clothes. Because there's this principle that continually shows up in the New Testament that we as Christians have experienced a change of spiritual status that is to be demonstrated in a change of relational disposition towards those that God places in our lives. Let me say that again. Over and over and over again, the New Testament testifies that a Christian is someone who has experienced a changed spiritual status that results in a, in a change of relational disposition to the people that God places in our path. In other words, there's to be public evidence of an inward change in the way that we relate and treat others. And so the best way to illustrate this in the New Testament is by the idea of 
our spiritual clothes. Each and every day, you and I make a decision about the physical clothes that we are going to put on that day. For instance, if you have an important meeting, you may decide to wear something that's considered business casual that day. Or if you have to do some hard manual labor, it's probably, you're probably not going to go out and do some hard manual labor in your backyard wearing a three-piece suit. Instead, you're going to wear something that's comfortable but also durable. Or maybe it's a leisure day for you, and if it is, then you're probably going to dress in something that's, that's comfortable and leisurely. If you're going to go to the gym, you're probably not going to wear a tuxedo to go work out at the gym. You're going to wear something that is loose-fitting and that you can sweat in, okay? We, we make decisions every day about what we're going to wear. Many of you did this morning. Some of you this morning changed clothes four or five times. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Anybody want to testify to that? You know, it's one of those things that you face every single day. What am I going to wear today, right? Now, some of you husbands, you don't have to face that decision because your wife lays out your clothes for you and tells you this is what you're going to wear today, right? But every day, you and I have to make this decision. How do I want to clothe myself today? Because the things that I wear say something about me. And so we put some thought into that. In the same way, Every day as Christians, you and I decide the spiritual clothes that we are going to put on that day before we leave the house. Am I going to clothe myself today in the value of my own good religious works? Am I going to clothe myself today in the pursuit of my passions and my personal indulgence? Am I going to clothe myself today in, in entitlement and what I feel like I'm entitled to from others? Am I going to clothe myself today in the sufficiency of God's grace towards me? and be a conduit of His grace towards others. You can write down Colossians chapter 3 if you want to. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. The verses are not up there, but this is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. He, he uses this illustration of putting off and putting on, very similar to, to changing clothes. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, and in these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of His Creator. Therefore... Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love. You hear the, the illustration there. There are some things in our life as followers of Jesus Christ that we need to put away, we need to take off. Those clothes need to no longer define us. Anger, wrath, malice, sexual immorality, impurity, unbridled passion, those things should be put away from us as Christ followers. And instead, we should put on compassion and love and truth and forbearance and humility and meekness. Paul and Peter are both talking about a change in our spiritual adornment. And there are things in the life of a believer that we should cast off and other things that we should intentionally clothe ourselves in every day. So what are these markers that Peter tells us? He says they're really be summarized in three ways. The first marker is that we need to put on gospel-based unity. He says you should have a unity of 
mind. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians aren't allowed to think for themselves or to have a personal opinion about something. It doesn't mean that we should not have personal opinion on political and social issues. But the unity of mind means that when it comes to the gospel and to the word of God, we should be unified about what God's word says and what God's word requires of us. When he speaks over and over again in the New Testament about the importance of unity, unity does not mean unanimity. It doesn't mean that we will be unanimous on all things in the church. It does mean that we should be unified on essential things in the church. Things such as the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the urgency of the Great Commission and our duty to fulfill it and the call to serve others with Christ-like love? These are things that we should have a unity of mind and a unity of purpose on. When we come together as the church of Jesus Christ, we don't come in here as a collection of a couple of hundred people with personal opinions about what we think ought to be done. We come in here with the authority of God's Word that says God's Word has told us what needs to be done and we are unified around this. This means that in the church, you can't always have your way. It also means that you shouldn't be in a church where, where nothing ever goes your way, right? There's a unity here. It's not unanimity, but there's a unity here. And we should be unified about what matters most. But not only should there be a gospel-based unity, there should be a gospel-fueled love. There should be a gospel-fueled love. He says... Not only should you have unity of mind, you should have sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart. These are three different forms of love. Sympathy is, is feeling sympathy to those who are broken and are far from God. When you, when you engage in our world every single day, you go to the grocery store, you go out in your neighborhood, you're interacting with people who are broken spiritually and far from God what do you feel when you see those people? Do you feel a sense of revulsion? Do you feel a sense of, 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 of judgmentalism? Or do you feel a sense of sympathy knowing that at one time you were broken and far from God too? There should be sympathy. There should be brotherly love, which is strong mutual affection for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. That we understand that we're part of a spiritual family, both locally here at Central Park and, and with all the other believers that are in our community. And that there should be a, a, a love that marks followers of Jesus Christ for one another. And that we should have a tender heart, which is another word for compassion. Compassion and tenderness and generosity towards those in our world that are experiencing brokenness. The markers of gospel-based unity and gospel-fueled love. And then the third is gospel-soaked humility. Gospel-soaked humility. We should have a humble mind. To be humble means to suppress the desire to be important and to put our interest first. It's antithetical to the way the world operates. Everything in the world tells us that we should put our own interest first. And that we should, we should strive to get ahead. But then we read Philippians chapter 2 that says that we should have the same mind as that which is Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, making himself nothing and taking on the form of a servant. That's humility. And as followers of Jesus Christ, every single day, we should put on the unity of the gospel. 
And we should put on a gospel-fueled love for others that God places in our path. And we should walk with gospel-soaked humility, understanding what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. These are the clothes of a follower of Jesus Christ. And these are what we should leave the house wearing every single day. So I want to give you a prayer that I want you to pray this week. And the prayer simply goes like this. Holy Spirit, clothe me today with the markers of your grace. Before you get up and leave the house tomorrow, pray that prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you will clothe me today with the markers of your grace. I pray that you would clothe me with with a unity over what's most important, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and with a a love for others that will be demonstrated in my actions, and and a humility that understands that it's not about me being first all the time. Clothe me today, Holy Spirit, with the markers of your grace. But the second choice that we as kingdom exiles face that we see in verse 9 is that we need to choose to be a conduit of blessing and not retaliation. Choose to be a conduit of blessing and not retaliation. Verse 9 instructs us on how to respond when we experience attack for our Christian witness. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. The force of the text assumes that as Christians we will experience evil and reviling for our Christian witness. He says when you have evil, when you experience reviling, do not repay those. Do not not give those in return. See, it's not what happens to us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's how we respond to what happens to us that often validates or invalidates the gospel in our Christian witness. It's not the reviling, it's not the criticism that demeans our Christian witness. It's how we choose to respond when those things happen that often invalidate our witness. Peter says, don't seek retribution or retaliation. Instead, seek to be a blessing. And the natural human response when we are wronged is to to seek justice and retaliation. When someone insults us, we often respond with insults of our own. When someone wrongs us publicly, we try to think of ways to shame and humiliate them in return. Or we tend to cower and fear and retreat from engaging in a lost world. But Peter is telling us here in verse 9 that our life is not about getting even and it's not about keeping score. It's about choosing to be a reflection of Jesus Christ towards others. Peter already establishes this fact in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, when he talks to us about the example of Jesus who didn't revile when he was reviled and didn't threaten when he suffered. And he says the same thing should be true of us. One commentator I read rightly pointed out that the opposite of gospel-soaked love, which we're called to do in verse 8, is a mean-spirited sense of justice, a cycle of insult and counter-insult, blows and counter-blows, retaliation and retaliation for prior retaliation. And this is exactly the kind of response that we see played out every single day on the world stage in our culture as hostile groups battle each other. Peter says that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not only called to suffer injustice in this world, but we are called to respond with blessing. When people wrong us, we are to see how we can be a blessing to them in return. The Lord Jesus said Himself in the Sermon on the Mount, when someone strikes you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek to them as well. 
And the reason for this is because as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand that there are bigger issues at stake than our personal feelings or our personal vindication. When others revile us and speak evil against us, there are gospel issues at stake. Because the people who often wrong us are lost and without Christ. And just as God chose to bless His enemies in the hopes of leading them to saving faith, we are called to do the same. As a matter of fact, Peter goes so far as to say that we should bless in order that we may obtain a blessing. I think what Peter is saying here is simply this. Don't look for a blessing from God when you seek to refuse to be a blessing to others, even those who wrong you. Don't be coming to church and piously praying for God to bless you and your family when there's somebody out there who needs to hear Jesus Christ who can't hear Him and can't see Him because of the way that you're treating them. Don't repay evil for evil. Instead, bless, for to this you were called. This is hard because we live in such a toxic culture right now that is charged with political retaliation. But there is no place in the kingdom of God for followers of Jesus Christ who are snarky, who seek public acts of revenge, or who revile people who have different political views than us. There's no place for that. And let me ask you this. Now, not all of you in here are social media mavens. Not all of you have Facebook, but some of you do. And I have something like 1,127 friends on Facebook, and some days I just want to go take a bunch of them off, but I don't do that. Let me ask you this. What would happen if you took the next 60 days and asked the Holy Spirit to do this? You asked the Holy Spirit for the next 60 days to help you steward everything that you put on social media and you fully submitted to His guidance before you said anything publicly or wrote anything online towards another person? What would happen to your social media feed? It would change. What would happen if you submitted and said, Holy Spirit, for the next 60 days before I respond to anybody, I submit myself to you and I ask you to help me to respond in a Christ-like manner, in a way that reflects Christ and the gospel? simple prayer you can pray is simply this. Holy Spirit, make me a conduit of your blessing to others today. Even when they're disagreeable towards or completely different than me. Holy Spirit, make me a conduit of your blessing to others. And that's easy to do with people that we like. It's easy to do with people that we go to church with. It's easy to do with people that, that like the same things that we like. But what about those people in our community and in your workplace that don't understand Christ, that don't, that don't share your values. How are you being a blessing to them? Thirdly, third choice is that we need to choose to be an agent of peace and not division. We need to be an agent of peace and not division. We've already read it. I won't read it again. Verses 10 through 11 are actually a quote from Psalm chapter 34, uh, verses 12 through 16. And notice how he begins this verse in verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and seek good days. Is there anybody in here that desires to love life and seek good days? Anybody? A few of us? Okay. All right. So the rest of you are just content with being miserable for the rest of your life, right? I don't know anybody that doesn't want to love life and have good days, right? Maybe you're in here and you're saying, no thanks, I'm really just looking for a mediocre day today. 
I think I'd rather wallow in misery and have no desire to love my life at all. Everybody wants to love life and desires to have good days. Don't you want to love every day that you're alive and have those days filled with goodness? Don't you want to put your head on the pillow at night and say, today has been a good day. Today I've accomplished everything that God would have me to accomplish today. Well, the Holy Spirit told David and Peter how to do that. And there's several ways that he said. He says, first of all, you need to pursue peace with everyone. Look at what he says here. He says, whoever desires to love life and seek good days, look at the end. Let him seek peace, verse 11, and pursue it. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Matthew chapter 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the ones who will be called sons of God. And see, peace is not the absence of conflict in life. Instead, it's learning to bring the gospel and the kingdom of God to bear in all places. It's understanding that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and we are His emissaries and we are His ambassadors trying to bring peace in Jesus Christ and His kingdom into every place that He sends us. As a matter of fact, I believe this text teaches us that there's a corresponding relationship between your pursuit of peace with others and the personal quality of your life. There's a parallel relationship between your decision to pursue peace with other people and the quality of your life. That's what he says. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him seek peace and pursue it. God's called us to be peacemakers. Not only that, he says we're to keep our tongues from speaking evil and deceit. He says... Don't let your tongue speak evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. He's talking about the way that we as believers choose to use the greatest personal weapon we have in our relationship with others. And that is our tongue. This is so important that the brother of Jesus, James, gave us an entire chapter in James chapter 3 on the importance of the tongues, importance of the tongue and the words that we say. And the primary way that we think about speaking evil is we think about using our mouth to curse others. Whether it's cussing at someone or pronouncing a public curse on someone else, it should not be a part of a follower of Jesus Christ. But I think there are other ways that we use our tongues for evil that we don't often think about or acknowledge, like slander, gossip, harassment, or even assassinating someone else's character because they believe something different than us. We shouldn't use our tongues to speak evil. As a matter of fact, I put in your notes, I believe your words serve as a window into your heart. And this is a lesson that I've had to learn as a follower of Jesus Christ in a very painful way. And so we need to commit to doing good every day and to turning away from those things that the Word of God considers to be evil. We need to pursue peace with everyone. We need to keep our tongue from speaking evil. I would give you this prayer today, and that prayer is simply this. Holy Spirit, help me to be an agent of peace to all people today. Help me to be an agent of peace to the people that you bring into my life today. In each and every situation, you have an opportunity to be a peacemaker or to advance conflict in this world. May God find us to be peacemakers. And then finally, the fourth and final choice that you and I have is that we need to choose to live for the favor of our Heavenly Father. We need to choose to live for the favor 
of our Heavenly Father. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, we need to understand every day that your God is watching. That He's watching and listening every moment of every day, and there is not a second of your life that God is inattentive to what's going on in you. I cannot think of more scarier words in the Bible than the end of verse 12 that says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Can you think of a scarier reality than to have God's face set against you? But the opposite of that is that God's eyes are watching the deeds of the righteousness, especially their response to suffering injustice in a fallen world from the hands of others. God's ears are open to your prayers in those moments that you cry out to Him when others do you wrong. God is listening, God is watching, and God's eyes and ears are open in responding to you. I think simply put, Peter is telling you and me that we need to choose each and every day that we walk out of our house to live a life for the favor of the Father. And as kingdom exiles, we need to live lives that find favor in God's eyes, that bless others even when they seek to harm or injure us. I put this in your notes, and you saw that up there on the screen just a second ago. How would, how would your life be different this week if you had lived every moment with the awareness that God is watching and listening? Would it have changed something you said to somebody this week? If you lived with that awareness that God's eyes were watching, that God's ears were open, would it have, would it have changed the conversation that you had? Would it, have, would it have maybe changed the way that you responded to someone that you saw in need? The prayer is simply this, Holy Spirit, empower me to live worthy in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Empower me, Holy Spirit, to find favor in God's eyes and in God's sight And we need to be careful with a message like this because it would be very easy to misunderstand these instructions and to walk out of here committing to do these things and to do so without any real personal gospel transformation in your heart. You see, there's nothing essentially Christian about making a commitment to being a loving person or speaking well of others or trying to be a person who promotes peace instead of division or wanting to live a life that finds favor in the eyes of God. Those things are not essentially Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to want those things. The problem is that you can't really find the fulfillment of those things apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You can't be a person who gives the evidences of grace if you've never truly experienced the grace of God and salvation. All you're doing then is just trying to be a good person. You can't truly promote peace in a world where you're still at war with God over your sin. You can't truly find favor in the eyes of God if you've never truly repented of your own sinful heart. So maybe today the greatest need of your life today is not these four duties that you're called to do, but maybe the greatest need of your life today is simply to surrender your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, I believe that these are choices that you and I face every day. Are we going to put on the markers of grace? Are we going to choose to be conduits of blessing? Are we going to choose to pursue peace with others today? Are we going to choose to live with the favor of God? These are the things that God has called us to. May God find us faithful as followers of Him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to...
We're going to enter into a time of invitation and an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And maybe today, as a follower of Jesus Christ, God's revealed something to you. You've said, you know what? I haven't been a very gracious person lately. I haven't allowed the markers of grace to to be evident in my life. Maybe today you're you're feeling like you've been more of of a person who's promoted division than blessing and peace. Maybe today you need to come as a follower of Jesus Christ and just say, God, I need you to do a fresh work in my heart today. I need you to, I need you to help me to remember that each and every day I choose the spiritual clothes that I'm going to put on and, and may I this week put on the, the clothes of righteousness. But maybe today you're here and you need the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior because what God's revealed to you is the greatest need of your heart is not to try to be better. The greatest need of your heart is to submit to what Christ has done for you. So just a moment as we sing, you respond as the Lord leads. And if you need to come today and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you do so. If you need to talk with me afterwards, just say, Pastor Matt, I need to to talk with you. something going on in my life. I'm not really sure what's going on, but I feel like there's there's a wall between me and God and I need to need to straighten that out today. You you feel free to do that. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've called us to be people who, who live distinctively for you. Lives of goodness and grace and beauty and, and, and blessing. God, help us to do that. Our natural tendency is to want to promote ourselves, to want to, to seek justice, but God, you've called us to be better than that. So help us to do that according to to your grace. Father, I pray for anyone in here that needs to know you today as their Lord and Savior. Speak to their heart. Reveal to them their sin and reveal to them the goodness of what Christ has done for them and give them the courage to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this song and respond as the Lord leads you today.